Thanks, guys. Well, I missed you. I've been gone for a couple weeks, and so we are back in the fray. And unfortunately, I'm walking into perhaps what's called a theological ambush. Uh, we're dealing with God's sovereignty, and it's out of Acts chapter 4. Uh, that's where we left off. That's where I'm picking up. I'm an expositional preacher. What that means is I just go through a book of the Bible, and whatever the Bible's saying, I, like a good messenger, just deliver you the mail. I don't come up with what we're talking about. It's just here's what's dealing with in God's Word, and whether it's culturally appropriate or it's going to offend a bunch of people, or and sometimes you'll just love what's going to be there. Sometimes you'll hate it and you want to hit the door early or never come back. Either way, my job is to just deliver the mail. And this subject is tough. Uh, to put it in context, God's sovereignty, that's dealing with uh, very unattractive words to some Southerners, especially predestination, election. Anybody, show of hands, ever wrestled with these terms before? predestination and election. Uh, Justin, you're probably already bracing. You're like, oh, it's already like bracing for impact. Just to put it in context, my wife and I, uh, years ago, we went to the mission field. We were full-time missionaries abroad for four years. And after the first year, I taught on this doctrine. I kind of laid it out of, here's two theological camps dealing with the sovereignty of God, the Calvinistic camp, the Arminian camp. These are words you don't really need to know right now, but just say there's two different kind of perspectives on this doctrine. And we just laid out that there were two. And a couple kids, college-age students, which we were teaching, uh, told their uh, dads and they spurred up. Needless to say, it all amounted to me and Becca almost getting fired for a job we worked for free. <laughs> Guys, do you know how humiliating it is to spend your own life's savings putting yourself on the mission field to preach the gospel and almost getting fired for it? That was humiliating. Uh, uh, even before that, I was involved with a really big church and they had lost their college pastor. And so they had real big services for the college-age kids. I was preaching in this context. This was over 10 years ago. Uh, and some folks wanted me to come on full-time. And so I was going to leave my vocational job, and I'm, hey, I'll be Pastor John to the college-age students. And the guy who was going to grant me my interview, I, I remember I walked in his office, and before I even sat down, he asked me where I stood on this doctrine. Where do you stand on predestination or whatever? And before I even got in my seat, the interview was over. Boom. Churches have separated over this doctrine. My wife grew up in a church, and because the pastor even mentioned some of these words, which are biblical words, he got fired and shipped off. Churches have broken up on this. And what I'm counting on is all of us would be okay to wrestle with something that's a little bit uncomfortable. Can I trust you to just do that this morning? If it, some of you will be kind of like, what's the big deal of like, yeah, it's kind of obvious. Others of you, it may, it may wreck you a little bit more, but that's okay to wrestle with important theological issues because what's at stake here is how we view our Bible, how we view our God. And if we do this right, if we land this plane right, what's going to happen is our view of God and ourselves, our view of God is going to be stretched. God, who is a certain size in your minds and hearts today, is going to get bigger. And if that happens, everything changes. That's called worship, right? And so we're going to dive into the text. We're picking up in Acts chapter 4, verse 23 
through 31. I'll read it. Oh, but background. Uh, Peter and John were preaching the gospel. This is in Jerusalem. Uh, revival is breaking out. The first time he, he preached outside uh, the temple in Solomon's portico, 3,000 people converted. Then he preached again and 5,000 converted. In, the, in just a very short amount of time, people are uh, converting from Judaism. And this is like in downtown Jerusalem, Temple Mount, and they're becoming Christians. And they're all jazzed up, excited, on fire. And the Jewish leadership, who's also the political leaders at the time, see, we've got to shut this down right away. This is getting way out of hand. So they, what did they do? They arrested them. They tried to quarantine them. They tried to censor and silence them. And the disciples basically told them to pound sand. They're like, no, I'm going to keep preaching about Jesus. I'm going to do whatever I want. And then they went and they rejoiced and celebrated the fact that they were persecuted for preaching Jesus. And they just kept going on about their way. So that's the idea is uh, the movement of Christianity was breaking out. The political religious leaders of the time tried to silence, censor, and quarantine this message. They refused to comply and uh, were picking up there. So in verse 23, when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together and uh, to God and said, Sovereign Lord. What's it mean to be sovereign? Sovereign. Sovereign means basically in charge of everything. Everything's under your authority. Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and earth and the sea and everything in them who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. That was a big mouthful. Let me unpack it. Basically, it's saying, hey, all the kings of the earth, the rulers oppose God. There is the kingdom of God, and this is whatever the governments are saying. Whatever the rulers, whatever the powerful people. Back in King David's day, they were resisting God and teaming up against him. And guess what? Right here in the disciples, in Jesus' day as well, doing the exact same thing, resisting God. And what the disciples view here is, what Peter is basically saying is, you know, the kings of the earth have nothing on the amazing sovereignty, the control and the power of God who created the heavens and the seas. And he's in charge. And then he says something very curious. He says, he anointed both Herod and Pilate to do whatever his hand had, whatever his hand and his plan had predestined to take place. Now, typically you think about an anointing, you're like, oh, Peter was anointed to preach the gospel. You know, it's like the good anointing. But here, Herod and Pilate. Herod was not a good dude. Pilate, not a good dude. Judas Iscariot, also anointed to do what God's plan had predestined to take place. This word, predestined, pretty simple. It means to pre-decide what's going to happen. So for instance, the Bible prophesies that Judas will betray Jesus. Hundreds of years before Jesus 
comes from heaven and is born into earth in human flesh. Before that ever happened, there was prophecy in multiple books of the Bible that Judas, his friend, who would share a cup, who would dip bread in wine, would betray Jesus for 30 shekels of silver, and then he does it. Furthermore, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he says, one of you is going to betray me. And the disciples getting insecure, it's like, hey, it's not me, is it? Nope, you're good. It's not me, is it? No, you're good. And then Judas says, it's not me, is it? And he's like, yes, it's you, Judas. I'm kind of looking y'all in the face here. And when I did Judas, I had to look above you all. So no one felt like, whoa, (laughs) easy, John. So none of you being Judas. But anyways, like, yes, it's you, Judas. Now, and then he he later dismissed him and says, now go betray me like you you were planning to do. Now, well, was Judas free to not do that? Now, if, could Jesus have just been wrong and all the Bible not been correct about it? And if Judas didn't betray Jesus, could Jesus die for your sins? It's like some people are doing some awful theological calculus. You're being like, I really came for the music this morning. <laughs> I did not know that I would have to think so hard. This is actually very, very important. It is worth wrestling for. And, and the good news is, is wherever you come out on this theological issue, which is really important, and I'll tell you why, it's fine. We just need to wrestle forward and have the courage to face the Bible on whatever it's telling us is truth. Here's truth. It's not John's perspective or some theologian with a fancy way that he's figured. No, it's just here's Bible, here's truth, and we're going to pray to the Holy Spirit to lead us into what in the world this means. But it actually is genuinely important. So um, the Lord anointed all the good guys and the bad guys to do whatever his hand and his plan had predecided, predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants and continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Finally, and when they prayed, the place in which they were uh, gathered together was shaken and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with all boldness. So uh, here it is. I just opened up and I'm like, hey, uh, I gave you a clue on like, hey, here's Judas and God pre-deciding what is going to happen. Some of you are already wrestling with like, well, don't we have free will on this? Shouldn't we have free will? Is it we get to decide or it does God decide? Which one is it? Uh, for my part, my kind of default setting was, is no, 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 we have free will and God's there and God knows the future. He knows how it's all going to come out. Kind of like uh, a cosmic genie looking in a crystal ball. He sees how it's all going to play out and it's up to us to kind of go out and do it. And he'll give us power and strength to do that. But really he tasked us to do the stuff. He gave us power to be sovereign in a certain way but it's kind of like wait is it us and our free will that that's kind of leading the charge or is it God who not only said it and knows it but the one who's actually bringing it about as God says I'm looking over my word to perform it I the Lord create the light and the darkness I heal and I destroy I the Lord do all things And so you're confronted with that, and it's kind of like, man, 
God is really in charge over all. And that, that's, that's what this doctrine is basically saying is, how sovereign is God and how sovereign are you? How much of this grand drama that's playing out in front of us daily, on the big scheme and even in your life, how sovereign are you? How much are you really in control and how much is God in control? Maybe, the, maybe you could picture it today kind of like spheres. It's kind of like for me, all my decisions and my gifts and, and my, my effort and my networks and my money and my bit, whatever. Of like, I have this much sovereignty. I am this sovereign. And, and God, not wanting to encroach on my free will, God's doing some stuff, but his sovereignty is more here. Now, you wouldn't say it. And it's an unattractive thought because you immediately know of like, well, that's a rigged deck of that. That's not how a, that's now a, not how I would theologically think about it. But many of us subconsciously actually do have that idea that you really believe in your mind's eye that you have more sovereignty over the events of your life than God does. And so what these verses seem to uh, suggest is God is ultimately sovereign in charge of all. And though you are sovereign, your sovereignty isn't as big as you thought. It's much smaller, right? And so that was something that I was wrestling with. It came to a head on January the 2nd of 2005. Now, I, was, I became a Christian around May 22nd-ish of 2001, somewhere in there. I'm not good at dates. Becca, am I good at dates? I'm not good at dates. It's March 6th. Eighth. It's in the fall. Spring. Winter. Winter. First try. Yeah, I'm not very good with dates. I do know her birthday. It's uh dudes, I'm playing 4D chess up here. I always uh say my birth my wife's birthday wrong. So in case one day I get it wrong, it'll look like I was I was just making a joke. So I've I've built in an alibi, right? This is all uh, all jokes. I don't remember dates very well, but I remember on January 2nd of 2005, I was having a, a phone call with my mentor, Kevin. He'd kind of been helping me along in the faith, and he was teaching on this doctrine to me on this thing, and I couldn't believe what I was hearing. Here's a guy who'd been to seminary and Bible school, and real sharp guy, and we'd been to war together, and we were buddies and done rock climbing stuff. We went way back, very bright guy. And the fact that he was talking about this pre-deciding, predestined stuff, it seemed ridiculous to me. And so what would happen is Kevin would give me a verse of scripture. And then I would go off for 15 minutes telling him what that really meant and how my free will was actually right here. And I would basically ex explain away verses that, frankly, I found uncomfortable. And then he would quote another and another. And we probably talked for over an hour. I'm pacing my room. I literally remember pacing my room and I was getting more and more agitated at him. My voice was getting upset. I was invested in this. I was a young Christian. I was on fire for the Lord. I was doing all kinds of ministry uh, and my blood was up because what he was doing is he was taking this beautiful kind of boxed in image of who God was and what God was responsible for and who I was and what I was responsible for, And he was taking a jackhammer to it. He was destroying it, and it was very upsetting to me because I felt like the, what he was saying, it was so clean and it fit so well. And after a while, I was like, Kevin, how can you believe what you're saying? He's like, John, 
I'm the only one quoting scripture here. And I realized, and in an hour of discussion, it's true. He would just quote Bible, 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 and I do philosophy, 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 and go back. Bible, Bible, Bible. He was the only one quoting Bible, and it wrecked me. So, so after that phone call, I was such a punk. I still am, really. I still am. But I would go to church, and I remember serving. Uh, I was uh, participating in serving in this ministry, and there was something benign. I remember someone asked me to help set up, of like, hey, John, can you help unstack some chairs for people coming in? And I remember this childishly. I said, I don't know. I don't know if I was predestined to do that. It's <laughs> a true story. That's a true story. I had this chip on my shoulder. I was wrestling with this doctrine. I didn't like the idea of something that would have been kind of settled for me getting smashed up and torn up. Let me give you some verses that Kevin quoted to me. There is, um, uh, first off, uh, no, before I go there, before I go there, uh, I, I want to say some things that basically had stood out to me. I recognize that we do, in fact, have free will. In fact, it's everywhere in the Bible. Uh, Adam is brought in front of all the animals, and God says, hey, name all the animals, and then the Lord watched to see what he would name them. Uh, So, I mean, like, we have a free will. God's allowing us to participate in this cosmic drama going out. So I recognize that. I also recognize God is good, and God doesn't do evil. And so if evil is done, if it's a rigged deck, and we don't have free will at all, and it's just all determined, well, then God is actually doing all the evil, and God would be evil. So instead, God may make us, and then we do evil, but he's the cause behind the cause and not the cause itself. So he's still sovereign over the event, but he isn't actually doing the evil. It's kind of like if my son went and robbed a bank. Don't rob a bank, boy. You hear me? Yes, sir. No robbing banks. Good. So we have covered that. We're good to go. Not a future bank robber right here. But if he did, now... Uh, he would be responsible for his crimes. I didn't do that, but if me and his mama hadn't gotten together, he wouldn't be there to even rob a bank one day. So I'm the cause behind the cause, but I'm not responsible for the bank robbery, right? Unless I was like getaway driver. (laughs) This is where my wife rolls her eyes at me. I'm sorry, I mean to be good. (laughs) I mean to be good. So anyway, I would be still kind of, Uh, a a cause behind the cause. So I'm still maintaining here that we have free will. I misunderstood what Kevin was coaching me on because I didn't see a way to fit this in. I felt like, okay, well, if God is pre-deciding and predestining, if he is electing that some people go to heaven and the other people don't go to heaven, it felt like a rigged deck. It felt to me like free will didn't even exist. Now, what I recognize and what I maintain is these two things are true at the same time. One is we have free will. You do. And a second thing is God is all-powerful in control. It's not that he just knows the future. It's that he is bringing about a beautiful plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in heaven and earth to himself. He has a plan, and he's making it happen. He's not a leader that allows us to go forward while he's sitting back 
uh, cheering us on, hoping we do the right stuff. He is the brave war captain with a plan, a strategic and tactical plan, who is spearheading into battle and inviting us to come behind him. His sovereignty is over our free will. Our free will, as a smaller sphere, exists inside the infinite great sovereignty and plan of God. So you still have free will. You just thought your free will was this and God's sovereignty was this, when really God's sovereignty is this and your free will is this. You get the idea? What needs to happen this morning is your view of yourself needs to shrink and your view of God needs to grow. Now, in this beautiful doctrine of how in charge God really is, how sovereign really God is, now we'll know that God is really working all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. It's that God is really the author of salvation. It's that it's God's glory. God gets all the credit, and we don't. Otherwise, we may use this spiritualized language like, oh, it's the Lord, but you're like, it's actually me. No, it really isn't you. He lets us participate. But we're like little kids finger painting in this drama while this spectacular, brilliant, infinite wisdom, manifold purposes of God are playing out in this orchestra, this uh, divine tapestry that'll be perfect when all's said and done. He's got a plan and he's doing it. So we have free will. It's good to go. It's a paradox how they both exist. One thing here, let me just, you know, riff on this a moment. Free will, it happens inside time in a time sequential event, you know? It's kind of like I can do some goofy stuff, and if I ask you, like, all right, what did I just do? And I spun a chair around, I'm like, all right, when? It's like, all right, it's Sunday. But if we didn't really have time to think about, like if we were outside of time, it's like, well, where is the chair in eternity, future, and past? You're like, well, the chair is yet to ever be made, or the chair's actually been swept away into oblivion, or... You know, it's kind of like if we're outside of time, it's hard to even think about simple time sequential stuff. So we recognize our free will is in a certain place at a certain time, you know. It's boxed in in the universe we know. Whereas God's sovereign plan and purpose happens before the universe even began. Of, of how could an all-powerful God, all-knowing, think the same way you and I do in our free will continuum. How could that possibly be? If he did, I'd think, ah, we made him up. But the fact that God is outside of time, of course the way he thinks and plans is going to be completely different than the way we do. Do you understand that? And in this way, God's perfect sovereign plan is almost in a different plane of existence than you and our free will. Therefore, where it looks contradictory. It's really just mysteriously paradoxical in a beautiful way. I don't know how it exists, but you're 100% free. God says, repent and believe. And that's an, honest, that's an honest request. Repent and believe as he desires none to perish, but all to come to a lasting knowledge of him. It's a real thing. Repent and believe, right? But also, the Lamb's book of life was written before the foundation of the world. And there's no eraser marks in there. Your name is there or it is not. Got it? I don't know how both of these are true. I know that they are. Got it? All right, very good. It's like the Trinity. How can you be three and one and one and three? I don't know. I don't know. But I would expect that an infinite creator, far beyond my own understanding, 
his entire makeup would be so otherworldly and incomprehensible to me that it should give me a little bit of friction that, oh, like, oh God is ontologically completely different than anything I could even imagine. There's nothing in creation to compare him to. And actually, it's a good apologetic for the existence of God. If you could perfectly kind of decipher the nature and inner workings of God, it's probably because you made them up, like the pagans, who just take mankind and write them large. Nope, God is not like that. And I don't understand the Trinity. And I don't understand how this works. But I, but I know it's true. I know God is sovereign, and you're responsible for what you do and don't do on this earth. Cool? Thank you, son. I like you. Another donut for you after this. None for y'all. Nobody else applauded. Those donuts are just for my son. Who? Do, um, true story. Uh, my wife and I bought you those donuts this morning. Uh, now, normally I wouldn't seek credit, uh, but I'm preaching on predestination, and I thought you might not like me at the end of the day. So it is actually a bribe. This is my bribe. If you're mad at me, I got you donuts. Cool? So we're all nice. Now, some of you are smugly thinking, yeah, but you were predestined to get those donuts before the foundation of the world. And I would say, yes, that's true. Back on topic. Here we go. All right. Uh, my, my first point was you do have free will. You are responsible for your actions here on this earth for eternity. The second point is God is sovereign overall. He doesn't just know the future. He is causing the future. He has a plan. Uh, I'd like you to go to Matthew chapter 10. It says this. Oh, let's skip ahead. Skip ahead. There we go. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs on your head are numbered. Look at this. This is Jesus saying, not a bird falls to the ground apart from God's will. How in charge is God? Just how in charge is he? How involved into the daily minutia of our existence is God's actual cosmic plan? The deist uh, believe that he's kind of kicked back. He created it all, wound it all up, set it off into space, and he sits back eating popcorn, granting some blessings here and there, reaching out here and there, but all in all is kind of uninvolved and it's up to us. That's the deistic conception of God. The theistic, the biblical conception is God is in the very minutiae, the smallest thing, the hairs on your head are numbered according to the great power and sovereignty of God. Right? Chris doesn't have any hair, and that was part of God's plan as well. So there you go. All right, very good. You're like, man, we're starting off rough. I'm like, bro, I love you. I shouldn't have gone there. I shouldn't have gone there. Let's go to Ephesians now. Even as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. In him, oh, this is now it jumps to verse 11. In him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things to the counsel of his will. You see it? I'll do uh, one more, and this is Romans 9, and this is heavy. If there was any doubt on the sovereignty of God, this, this would put it all to bed. 
uh, and I didn't put it on the screen. It's a good bit of text, but if you have your Bible, you can follow along. And he, uh, Romans chapter 9, verse 10. And not only so, but also when Rebecca had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue. Now, election, so there's predestination. That means the hairs on your head are numbered, not a bird falls to the ground, apart from the will of God. Predestined means everything predestined. But when it deals with uh, God's plan applied to people, we call his predestination on people election. Just like God chose the Jews. God elected the Jews. The word choose and elect, it's the same. God chose the Jews. God elected the Jews. The same theological sentiment. Now, in Ezekiel, we find out that God chose the Jews not because they were awesome, but because they were more stubborn than all the other nations. And so he wanted to show his own glory and awesomeness to be able to convert the most stubborn people on the planet. And so it wasn't because the Jews were awesome. And similarly here, it says, hey, Though uh, Jacob and Esau, before they were ever born and had done Eve, never done anything right or wrong, I chose Jacob and not Esau. Keeping on going. Now, what then shall we say? Is there injustice on God's part? See, uh, Paul, the writer of the book of Romans here, is anticipating that we humans would have a problem with this. He's like, hey, whoa, is, is God unjust here? For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. This is so anti-American to us. To us, we, uh, we believe in our freedom and our autonomy, and we want to believe that it's all kind of up to us. But here, it's just arbitrarily say, uh, God saying, hey, guess what? I show compassion to who I want, and I, I uh, drop the hammer on those I want. It's all mine. I get to do whatever I want to do, however I want to do it. Uh, and that is not attractive to us, is it? We, have more, we start more of the humanistic perspective. So this can be a little bit grating on us. So then it depends not on human will. You could say free will. It depends not on human will or effort, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he who has mercy on whoever he wills, and he hardens whoever he wills. Uh, th now, this is, this is a strange thing that's about to happen here, because it's the only time in the entire Bible where I see Paul run like a stiff arm play. Uh, if you know anything about football, like somebody's running with the ball and someone goes to tackle them and they put out an arm and stiff arm them and then run right by. This is the first time and only time I ever see Paul do this in the New Testament. He says this, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault if God's electing who goes to heaven and who doesn't? For who can resist his will? And then he says this, but who are you, O man? To answer back to God, will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and one for dishonorable use? 
Basically, I think what's happening here is Paul's recognizing that we are mingling with mysteries that our hardware is not able to actually run that, that program. We just can't do it. We can't imagine the infinite expanse of space and time. We just can't. We can't run that, we can't run that program. And similarly, we're just not going to understand this. Now, I want to give it a go, though. I want to give it a go. I want to give a picture of kind of what it looks like for God electing people. Sound good? How many of you are uncomfortable right now? Okay, very good. Me and Will have talked about this uh, a good bit. All right, so the Bible says this. Uh, in Romans chapter 3, it says, For all of sin fall short of the glory of God. No one seeks after God. No, not one. From prophet to priest, everyone deals corruptly. The heart is deceitful beyond all measure. Uh, all of your righteousness is like filthy rags. No one enters suit justly. No, not one. This isn't Romans 3. I just strung together about eight different verses that tell you that you're terrible. And that no one seeks after God. No, not one. That's the plight. This is, uh, this is basically what happens. All humanity is right here. Here is God, and here is perdition. Here's destruction, here's ruin, here's sinfulness. And on the command go, on the command start, on uh, uh, mankind runs toward destruction. That's what's happening. God calls, repent, put your faith in me. But not a single person None of us look back over our shoulder and say, hey, I wonder if I should go after God's will instead of my own. No one seeks after God, no, not one. That's what the Bible is saying. We all immediately, without looking back, without slowing down, run towards sin. That's what we do. The, the problem is, is some of us don't even feel that. And the problem is with that is we can't decipher how bad we really are in the eyes of infinite goodness. If God is of pure eyes that he can look on evil, if he's infinite in nature and he's also good, then he's infinitely good. So even when you think you're being good, it actually looks evil to God. Only God is good. Jesus was confronted with this when he, uh, somebody says to him, good teacher, and he says, wait, why do you call me good? No one is good but... God alone. No one's good but God alone, right? And so, uh, what happens on the command go, we all run toward destruction. Now, what the Bible says is God, in love, reaches out and grabs us by our shirt collars and jerks us back. And he says, nope, uh, you're coming with me, and you're coming with me, and you're coming with me. Uh, and this is what we call election. This is God rescuing us and saving us. It says uh, in the book of Hebrews uh, that the Lord is the author and perfecter of our faith. Jesus is the author and perfecter of it. That means he starts our salvation. He literally creates in us a new and clean heart. Earlier in the book of Acts, uh, the people had heard Peter's sermon and then they were cut to the heart. It said they were cut to the heart. And then they said, brother, what should we do to be saved, right? And then he says, repent, confess and believe in Jesus. That's the way it works. We're cut to the heart and then we confess and believe. So as we are mounted up, running toward ruin, God reaches out and what that reaching out feels like is a cutting to the heart. It means God reaches out, changes our heart, gives us a new heart. 
And once we have that new heart, we realize that we're sinful, and then we want God. Then we confess and are saved. But the new heart comes first. And if you didn't get a new heart, you wouldn't confess. Jesus says something curious to the disciples. He clarifies something to them. We feel like we're in charge, like we're, we're shaking it up. Uh, and we're, uh, we're making everything happen. But Jesus clarifies something to his, his disciples. And he says, you did not choose me, but I chose you. That's what salvation is. Uh, there was a great reformer in the 1500s. Uh, who said the only thing you contributed to your own salvation was the sin that made it necessary. I've also heard it says, if you had as much to do with your spiritual rebirth as you did with your physical one. <laughs> Interesting. Salvation is of the Lord. Uh, Jonah 1. Uh, so here's point three. If God hadn't chosen me, I wouldn't have chosen him. This was the demonstration here. God reaches out and rescues us as we run from him. Salvation is of the Lord. Now, what this should do for us, and by the way, of course God's got to be sovereign like this, right? Infinite in power and majesty, and he creates the universe. He speaks in the darkness and creates cosmos and trillions of galaxies light years away with suns and Alpha Centauri, and creates all this by force of will and sovereign power, knitting the universe together, and then he puts man on a little dot of a blue planet, and it's like, all right, you guys take it from here. No, he's in charge. He's the Alpha and Omega brilliant, infinite in wisdom. And he recognized when humanity went bad, if he didn't impress on us his plan to save us, no one would ever go to heaven. Now, some folks would still smugly say of like, well, why doesn't he choose everyone? And that's the wrong question. It's the wrong perspective. We're starting at a place where we're charging God with error as if uh, as if we deserved salvation in the first place. It's a humanistic perspective when really in heaven's eyes it would say, why in the world would he save anyone? And that's the right perspective. The right question is, is well, why would God save anyone when all of us have infinitely offended the great God? Why would he rescue? Why would he love the unlivable? Why would he forgive those who deserve damnation? Why would he do that? And that's the big riddle. I have no idea. I wouldn't have done that. You wouldn't have either. Somebody cuts us off in traffic and we're ready to slash their tires. You know, we're nothing like God. We're nothing like Jesus. Um, God's sovereignty. Now, the reason why this doctrine is so important is, is, one, it's the way I understand my entire Bible. Is This is how God works. He chooses uh, and makes promises based on his choices. If he just left us up to our good behavior, everyone would be destroyed like in the days of Noah. So instead, he makes Noah a promise, a covenant, that no matter how bad you are, I'm going to make a remnant. And that's what he's going to do. He's making a plan to redeem those who really don't deserve one in any way. So uh, what God's sovereignty does, what this should do for us it should lead us to know, understand that God is much bigger and more powerful than we ever gave him credit for. This is an absolutely essential understanding because as God grows in your mind, you shrink. We call that holiness. 
As God is bigger, you are smaller, and that is what holiness is. It also leads you to worship, right? As you just see the majesty of God, you see the goodness of God, you see the power of God, and you recognize everything, all worship, all glory is really due Him. And so that you see the size of God, uh, you see His sovereignty. It also gives us comfort in knowing that God, because He has a plan and He's in control, He truly can work all things together for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. It should be a great comfort. Look at this. We're so caught up in our daily junk, you know, in all the fears that we have regarding vocation and uh, government stuff. And it, it's hard to not have a severe degree of apprehension about the future, right? I mean, times are getting, times are bad and they're getting worse, aren't they? But here's the disciples. The kings of the earth arrested them They've already seen some of their friends murdered, and they know they're going to be tortured and murdered soon. But when they were arrested and charged by the most powerful men in their land to no longer speak in this, they celebrated with joy that they'd been counted worthy of being persecuted and then prayed for boldness to disobey these people all the more. They were not scared of the leaders. Why? Because they recognized everything that was happening was according to God's plan and God was sovereign over all. And these little puny kings of the earth had nothing on God's sovereignty. Nothing. As God gets bigger, all of our paltry little problems and fears disappear. And we're actually to live out the biblical imperative. Fear not. The righteous are as bold as lions. Do you know why? It's because God is big and great. God's in charge. The kings of the earth have nothing on you. Right? Uh, we also understand that God, uh, salvation is from the Lord. We don't steal his glory when we lead someone to the Lord. Uh, we recognize, I can't believe the Lord let me participate in this, but truly, God changes a heart and makes us alive. He brings dead bones to life. That's his job. That's what he does. And I will not steal his glory because salvation is from the Lord alone. Uh, final thing is, is it makes us bold. God's sovereignty makes us bold, just like the disciples. Uh, as we're going through the book of Acts, we see them boldly preaching in the midst of censorship, opposition, uh, uh, arrests, uh, public pressures. They're losing friends and family and they will f face uh, uh, torture and death, and yet they're praying for more boldness. And I recognize as soon as they gave God the glory here, and they recognize, nope, everything's happening according to the sovereign God's plan, and He's in charge, and we pray that we will boldly follow this great God who cannot be overcome. And when they prayed that prayer, the place was shaken, as if to say, right on! As if all angels around were rattling spears and shields saying, Amen, small human, your God is great and is invincible. Right? So give him alone the glory. Right? God is sovereign, guys. God is sovereign. Yeah, thank you, son. That's not another donut, just one donut still. One donut still. Chris, we close down? Uh, or um, uh, you want to pray us out? We've never wrapped up a... a a thing together. You want? I feel like we should just stand here together. You know, just just right here. Hey guys, <laughs> you want to pray us out? Yeah. You want me oh. to? All right, sure. fantastic. Yeah.
Guys, thanks so much uh, this morning. I'm going to hand it over to Chris. Love you. Appreciate you. If you're struggling with this, that's okay. And you don't actually have to land where I did. You don't. This is where I, uh, I, I uh, have landed. I don't see any possible way it could be different. Uh, but I'd like you to wrestle uh, with this. You should. These are biblical words. I had a buddy who, as I was wrestling with this, um, I, w- I had a big problem with this word predestined. And he handed me a magic marker. He's like, here you go, just cross out the words you don't like. And I'm like, <laughs> and I had to get back to wrestling. Chris, land this plane.